Thanks for listening to The Benefits Breakdown. Stay tuned until the end of our next episode titled MSK Hooray! The Musculoskeletal Industry and What Employers Can Do to Receive a Code for Sherm Credit. Now, enjoy the episode. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of The Benefits Breakdown. I'm Vanessa Longnecker here with... Hey, everybody. Jared Bocutt's back. Hey, everybody. Jared, Vanessa, we are excited, pumped up, and we're going to get into some fun today around pharmacy. And we've got two amazing industry experts. We can't wait to get into the landscape, talking about clinical trends, cost containment initiatives, things that employers can do to just make the most of this ever-changing marketplace. So Steve Mikey from Remedy, as well as Alan Panier from SmithRx, we can't wait to have you introduce and drive into this more. But Steve, let's kick it off. Let's have some fun. And if you don't mind, just setting the groundwork for what the heck's going on in the landscape of pharmacy, PBMs. Uh, do you need a three-hour conversation for that just in general or just what's happening as you see it? Uh, well, we can, we might be able to get it down to 15, 20 minutes if I really talk fast. So. So. So as Adam said, Steve Mikey, I'm the chief pharmacy officer at Remedy. I'm a, one of the divisions of Brown and Brown. And they've asked me kind of just to spend a few seconds on what does the landscape look like in 2023 as it pertains to pharmacy benefits, et cetera. And I think uh, a lot of the cynics would say that the, all the players within our RX ecosystem, as we would call it, from the manufacturers to the government, to the payers, even to the patients, have created some of these current challenges. And like I said, the cynics might even actually say, maybe we've made this complex by design. But uh, here at Remedy, and I think you know a lot of the folks that work in this space on a day-to-day basis view the landscape from a relatively simple lens, that all the complexity in this space really comes down to two elements for the most part. What's the unit cost of the medication that the patient's taking? And what are the mix of the medications that they're taking to, you know, to prevent disease in a given population. Of course, disease burden changes within a population um, based on age, gender, et cetera. But there's other external influences that drive what medications patients are taking too. And we'll, we'll kind of discuss a little bit of that today. So at a high level, what do we see that's really impacting the 2023 landscape? I think top of everyone's mind, obviously, is a specialty drug pipeline. That includes gene therapy, which has been in the news a lot over the last two years, and precision medicine. Literally, we now can design medications that are specific for a given patient based on their disease. We're going to touch a little bit on that. You know, the, but we can't forget about the non-specialty pipeline. We're seeing a resurgence with diabetes medications, migraine medications, weight loss medications, and all of the digital solutions out there to enhance patients' engagement with these disease states, whether it's medication options or the related cost of those medications, and most certainly also to enhance their, their care. You got to think about the Bluetooth-connected glucose meters and the insulin delivery devices. So, so that's, that's the first two things, specialty drugs and non-specialty drugs really driving the landscape. I think we need to think about the emergence of point solutions. Maybe another word is disruptors. We've talked about and heard about Mark Cuban and Amazon starting to participate in the pharmacy space. We'll touch on that. I know Alan has a few comments about Mark Cuban. And then, but maybe most importantly, and most certainly within the last week or two, we're starting to see maybe the most under the radar influencer in this is the state legislatures. We're seeing 
new regulations and proposed regulations that are being drafted under the pretense of consumer protection. But in many cases, they're going to have a cost. We're going to read an additional cost into this from the end payer, whether that's American employer, the government, et cetera. So there's different areas of focus on these legislations. Um, we're going to you know, have to think about this as we go forward in, in terms of how do we uh, interact with that within our pharmacy benefit. And some of these, just to kind of put a point on this and we can move on is, you know, are we looking at opening up of the networks, preventing mandatory mail, mandatory specialty? Are we going to have different way of financing the PBM benefits, rebates? How are we going to distribute those? And also some of the pricing benchmarks that are used in how we de determine those going forward. So we'll, we'll touch on a little bit of those. Some topics will be for another day, but I think that's kind of the landscape as I see it. How about you, Alan? Yeah, no, it's uh, a great point. And I think we're really at a an inflection point in the pharmacy benefit space as we now have prices continuing to increase. You're looking at, you know, another eight to 10% increase in drug spend this year. And what we're seeing now is kind of pushback between drug manufacturers and the, the big three PBMs that really control a lot of the marketplace where drug manufacturers initially were getting a lot of the scrutiny for drug price increases over the last 10 plus years. And now pushing back and really exposing light to, to the rebate world that was somewhat a black box to, to many employers and consumers and being able to, to push back and now, you know, try to show this concept of a gross to net bubble saying that, you know, that they're, they're having to increase the price of their medications because of the larger and larger discounts that they're giving these, these large PBMs and finding that many of that or much of those dollars are not trickling down to to the actual payers and the employers in the situation. I think our market size of listener is going to vary, right? There's going to be a lot of different things that might hit a few smaller employers, mid-market, national, jumbo size employers. But at the end of the day, it seems like the math is getting funnier if I'm reading the between the lines. Like something goes up and then something comes down with a rebate. It just seems like it's more complex than ever. That landscape just doesn't seem to be getting for easier for employers. So maybe kind of shifting that a bit into some of those clinical trends or market trends Let's try to dive that into what employers can start to think about when it comes to, you know, costs going up and then how do they deal with that or what they can do for their employees. Maybe some strategies that, that you both are seeing in the marketplace. Maybe Alan can continue on that path with uh, your initial thoughts on that. And Steve would love to hear yours as well. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great point. And I think what's interesting, right, is you have employers and plan sponsors going through, you know, annual negotiations and RFP processes and uh, getting increased maybe network discount rates or increased rebates each year thinking that they're uh, you know getting a better deal or, or saving on their pharmacy benefit but then year over year their prices are continuing to go up and increase and so there's as you're saying there's this not really a direct correlation so what we're finding and uh, really pushing for in the market is to really focus on what matters which is your per member per month spend and uh, employers should look at that and look at you know what they're paying because what they're paying is you know the direct correlation to uh, to their cost increases and finding partners that are able to truly lower that per member per month spend and kind of shift the focus away from, you know, the, the tr traditional aspects of uh, negotiating with pharmacy benefit managers. Uh, as part of that, there's a number of saving solutions out there. And I think one important thing for employers is really to focus on savings, yes, and removing some of those, what I'd say are market inefficiencies where, you know, maybe we can 
help navigate a patient to a lower cost path for a particular medication. But there's also some scenarios where, you know, just because the medication's expensive uh, doesn't mean that they shouldn't pay for it or they don't have to pay for it. As Steve was mentioning in his intro, a lot of these medications do uh, manage disease states, right? And there's medical cost offsets that, that come with them. And so I think it is important to really continue to push and be creative in finding uh, saving solutions in the market, but then also at the same time being cognizant of, you know, there's certain times where the medication's expensive, but it's, it's, you know, it's part of the treatment and it needs to be paid for. When it comes to some of those clinical saving solutions, as, uh, as Steve was mentioning his intro, there's, I think there's a number of ways out there for market inefficiencies as it comes to, you know, working more closely with uh, some of the drug manufacturers' savings programs or solutions, or some of these what we would call disruptors, such as the Mark Cuban Cost Plus Pharmacy. I think that's uh, one that's come up a lot. They started a year ago, and you know they've done a great job in marketing and really gaining a lot of momentum. And what they're doing is they're looking at attacking the market from the other side, the supply chain side, in trying to remove wholesalers and, and even drug manufacturers. In some cases, they have aspirations to to manufacture generic medications, but they're really looking at how do we remove um, some of the middlemen on the supply side and bring forth a very straightforward, transparent model to the pharmacy side where they buy the drug for a cost from the manufacturers or from a wholesaler and they mark it up 15% and it's disclosed, you know, they make 15% on every medication and there's not swings in revenue per drug. And so what we're finding uh, with Mark Cuban pricing is there's some medications that uh, generic medications where the pricing isn't really that much less expensive. Um, in some cases, maybe even a little bit more expensive than if you were to go to, you know, a, an independent pharmacy and get the medication at an independent pharmacy. But there's other medications where that margin, where that markup is fairly large in the marketplace, um, in particular generic specialty medications where uh, pharmacies are making, you know, hundreds to thousands of dollars. And by removing that margin and just taking the 15% markup, you're seeing a dramatically lower cost. Again, it's, it's being a consumer. Uh, which can be difficult at times in the pharmacy space, but being a consumer and really being able to navigate these different solutions. Um, and there's there's savings to be had in, in doing so. Steve, certainly would love to hear your thoughts there too. Yeah, it's, um, you know, to Mark Cuban uh, comment, I think there's some of us that think in the future, you know, maybe within five years, there could be a day where much of the generic marketplace and the access to low cost products will be through marketplace products like that, where we won't have it under a particular benefit. You know, the fact remains that while specialty costs and gene therapy drive a lot of the conversation because they're enormous costs on a per unit basis, the average generic prescription is still under 25 bucks a month for most medications. It's that other 10% of the prescriptions that aren't generic, 90% being generic, the other 10% being the brand and the specialty drugs. You know, that's where we're seeing, you know, just some statistics to really bore us. You know, we expect 77 new drugs to come out this year from the FDA. It's higher than recent years. Vast majority of them are going to be specialty medications or in the disease classes that I kind of mentioned earlier in diabetes and weight loss and even in the migraine medications. You know, one of the things that we're really looking forward to, and it's been widely publicized, is the release of the biosimilar products. You know, Humira being the top drug in the world by sales for the last, I don't know, probably four or five years, um, having what we'll call, you know, a generic product version available in, in a biosimilar. 
and the world is going to be changing as we're expecting a multiple releases of uh, Humira biosimilars here in the next, already out on the market and a few more coming next year. But some of the, you know, what Alan kind of mentioned that it's some of the areas where this really is impactful is farmers spending a lot of time and money making sure that we're patients are considering other options other than Humira and its biosimilar. Yeah, I don't want to pick on any particular manufacturer, but the people that make Humira have two other products in that class that come at a much higher cost. And whether or not it's more efficacious to treat the disease states, you know, that's a matter of questions that physicians need to answer. And I can venture to say most physicians are probably going to say, well, there is some incremental value, but is it worth the additional cost? So all of this kind of comes into play as we have to think with our employers, clients, and friends determine how they're going to pay for their drug benefit, et cetera, going forward. So I don't know, uh, do we want to have Alan talk a little bit about some of the other cost containment ideas that are in the marketplace? Maybe let's talk just for a few minutes about, I think it would be worth our time because we can talk a lot about cost savings initiatives and go down that road. And I don't know if we have time in our quick episode today to dig into all of that, but I would love to, uh, Steve, get your thoughts and Alan as well on the specialty drug landscape and dig into that a little bit more. I think that's on everyone's mind. Every employer that we talk to out there is like, what's going on with specialty drugs? What's on the horizon? And how do we not break the bank, but still to the point, allow Gene access therapies. to care? And and, yeah. and what can we do? And what do we need to know what's coming and all the things that are out there in that space? Because I, that, that's a common thing that comes up with the employers we talk to is what's going on with specialty medications? What's on the horizon? And, and what can we do about that specific well, I think any discussion on specialty drugs starts with gene therapy. We expect 10 to 20 of these new products um, coming out in the market in the next few years. For those that aren't real familiar with gene therapy, it's simply the ability to create a cure for a disease that's genetically based. So, for example, a big one that's coming out here in the near future, one is already on the market to treat hemophilia. In the past, we just treated the patient as they had their bleeding episodes. The new products will actually cure a patient of hemophilia. So they come with price tags. Uh, the one that's already on the market is 2 to $3 million for a one-time treatment. How do we fund that over, is that a one-time initial responsibility of an employer, or should it be spread out across multiple years under a payment plan? Should it be a government benefit? Um, you know, those are all questions that are in the marketplace, but we expect 10 to 20 of these coming out in the next uh, few years. They're not going to be for super rare diseases anymore either. We're going to see more gene therapies for more common diseases. We're already starting to see curative treatments for diabetes, certain types of diabetes. I don't want to get everyone too excited, but certain types of diabetes, there may be curative treatments in the future. Now, while a lot of these are under the medical benefit right now, um, we're going to start to see, you know, the, as I mentioned earlier, the legislative aspects of this. How will we fund these? Who's going to be distributing them, et cetera, is going to be a key going forward on the gene therapies. There are certain ways and certain tactics that can be used to help mitigate that spend. I'll save that for a little bit later. Otherwise, the, the landscape, other than the Humira biosimilars, we expect a few more handful of um, another 10 products or so that are going to be biosimilar uh, options in the next uh, five years or so. Um, and then the rest of the market, um, we're continuing to see oncology drive trend. 
I would bet that every employer in America has a large trend in oncology spend. And whether that's on the medical side or the pharmacy side, we're seeing uh, that continue to occur. We've made cancer a chronic disease, to be frankly honest with you, is that we are now patients will take these medications for the rest of their lives. So that's what the specialty horizon looks like right now. I guess the good news besides, you know, the general's comment about Humira is the anti-inflammatory class is full of medications. There's probably 40 some medications. There will be pricing competition. There should be management competition in terms of how do we utilize utilization management tactics that we can use that Patients can start on the least expensive drugs, and I know Alan's uh, group does that very well. So, two million dollars for a drug? My goodness! I mean, I, I mean, so part of that is that I mean that's just the reality, right? But the kind of the funny math, and I think that the employer is spending that, and Steve make a great point: how that should be funded, who's going to pay for that? I mean, Alan, to kind of build on that, how does that math work back for the employers, where it might be a net price or a price up front, but what can they do on the other side, whether it be a rebate or or contracts or what things can they look at to help get the best deal for these really expensive drugs? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think what we're going to find out as these become more prominent in the marketplace is there will have to be a fundamentally different uh, form of payment for these medications. I think what we're seeing now with just a few that are out there is a lot of employers are taking a hard stance and excluding the medications and not covering them altogether, which you know potentially isn't the right answer either, right? When you have a cure for hemophilia and you think what, you know, the, the burden that that goes into for a, a family or a mother that has a child that has hemophilia and all of the work that it goes into, you know, doing the administration of the current medications and products, uh, it's, it's hard to argue that a, a cure isn't the right treatment for that person, but, you know, to have, it almost becomes a game of hot potato, right? And <laughs> which, which uh, employer is the one that has to, happens to be employing the person at the time when they get that $2 million treatment. And that's not the right answer either. We are having ongoing conversations with a lot of these drug manufacturers about performance types of models as well, where it, it's a one-time treatment, right? And the employer is potentially taking a risk and paying the $2 million up front. But what happens if that treatment fails, right? And who ends up paying for it there? And so um, we're having some outcomes-based conversations with employers or with drug manufacturers about this. But at the end of the day, I do think there'll have to be some, you know, risk sharing or, you know, amortization of, of the payment of these medications. And the, and the model as it stands today where, you know, the employer pays uh, for the medication at the time of dispensing just will not work. Um, on that point, the, I think another super interesting trend that we'll see play out, as Steve mentioned, over the next even couple of months is the, the biosimilars for Humira. And we're going to start seeing a lot of collisions in the market of PBMs uh, against drug manufacturers and how this plays out. And uh, we saw a start of it in February when the first biosimilar was released called Amgevita. Uh, the drug manufacturer Amgen, uh, who also makes Enbril, uh, released the biosimilar and in a very unique strategy, released the same medication at two different prices. There was an $80,000 version and a $40,000 version. Exact same medic medication, no differences. Uh, one was a high price, one was a low price. And when asked, the CEO said, look, We've got to price it at two different price points to meet the market because we know some PBMs really generate value off of rebates and rebates is really what feeds their model. And so we have the two different price points. And uh, as a result of that, as you've seen the, the big three PBMs, all of them picked the, the higher price uh, generic or biosimilar on their formulary. They recently did a, a earnings call, Amgen did, and they didn't even discuss the, the sales of the lower-priced uh, Amgevita, the lower-priced biosimilar, because there hasn't been sales. Um, and so 
we're now starting to see kind of the the rebate games and tactics getting somewhat exposed. And so as we get these seven more products that come July July 1st or July 5th, but whatever date you pick, I think the, the first is over the, the weekend. So July 5th is when most of them will be available. Um, as we're having conversations with the, these biosimilar manufacturers, there's a lot of them that are going to be very aggressive in their pricing strategy and really try to truly disrupt the market and kind of blow things up for lack of a better word. And so we'll, it'll be very interesting to see uh, what strategies PBMs pick. And I think it'll be very um, eye-opening as employers are out looking for PBM partners to be able to, to determine, you know, who do I want to partner with based off of the strategies they're taking and uh, really the employer's philosophy as well, whether they're looking at, you know, the savings up front or, you know, continuing to, to utilize rebates, which, you know, could be a, a strategy as well, depending on uh, how you look at your drug spend. And if regs still allow you to, right? We're, we're learning pretty exactly. quickly. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's some very timely legislation that could absolutely change the landscape yet again. I mean, we, we're unveiling a lot of layers here. So some of our listeners, they may not realize and others might be pretty studious in this space. But the reality is the same drug doesn't cost the same amount <laughs> at the same location um, or in the local geographic region, uh, it, there's a magnitude, a mass uh, shift, right, in what we see in pricing strategies deployed all across the country. There's some that have access to rebates and are well known on it and benefiting from that, others that are not. Some that are getting passed around the rebates, others that are not. We have strategies around exempting, right, certain drugs and or putting up very protective guide guardrails, right, and plan design strategies that are occurring in the marketplace. We're also hearing a lot about you know, redirecting how you're accessing some of these drugs, right? So the layers between medical and true retail point of service distribution channels and what may or may not be more efficient. That's a lot to digest, right? For the average consumer, I can guarantee you the average member with their ID card in their back pocket does not realize, right, the variability that's happening behind the scene. You know, Alan's made some really great points. Steve, I'd be curious, what are some other closing thoughts you would have for our audience? I know we've, we've got so much we could cover here, but this is complex, right? Where do you see this going? What other things do we need to make sure folks are minimally thinking about? Well, I guess if I had to you know, wrap this up in a pretty little package, you know, three things come to mind. Um, data drives better decisions. Any payer needs to know exactly what's driving their trend, whether it's specialty, et cetera. You know, the pipeline is robust, like we kind of mentioned, you know, gene therapy, specialty medications, grabbing the headlines. But don't forget about diabetes, migraine, and weight loss. It's driving upwards of 10% of the trend for every employer that I've talked to this last year. And Again, there's tools to manage the exposure to higher prescription costs, and it, you know every payer has to have you know do proper due diligence to make themselves more comfortable in understanding what is real savings. As as Alan described, you know some of the rebate games that have been played over the years, and whether we have two products that have identical price tags in the marketplace. The other piece, I guess, you know, this is four points, I guess. I started with three. I'm going to make it four is every payer. In the, okay, thank you. <laughs> every payer needs to understand the legislative landscape and the state that they're in. And some of it's driven by where their members reside. So, for example, the state of Florida law that, that, that was just passed last week pertains to patients or members that are getting prescriptions filled in the state of Florida. So they're subject to these laws. It isn't necessarily the employer, but it's the PBM that has to follow these laws. And by 
designed a trickle back up to the payer, the employer, um, et cetera, insurance company. Um, other states, it's driven at the employers in that given state, and the rules and regulations are aimed at them. So data, pipelines robust. There are tools to help manage and watch the legislation uh, landscape because it's changing on a day-to-day basis. I guess that's if I had to summarize what I would have called the arms here for the next uh, two weeks, that would be it. <laughs> well, and two weeks is ambitious. Well, you're saying yeah, it's real yeah. simple, right? I really try yeah. to boil this down into really simple points. So, yeah. No, you did it great. But this is, this to me is in our industry, I mean, there's a lot of things that are pretty complex. We, we talk about leave management and we talk about the state changes that happen there and we talk about medical plans and, this to me is one of the more complex things that employers have to stay on top of because it's to some of the things that have been talked about, it's balancing getting access to care for their members and getting them the right treatment, but then having some of those small and mid-market employers figure out, even large employers figure out how they're going to, to spend this. Steve, you were joking around about some of the spends of some of the clients you had on beforehand, and it's astronomical if our listeners heard some of those numbers of what people yeah. are spending on on prescription drugs on a, on a regular basis and trying to stay on top of that but then balance getting access to care and, and, and really caring for that mother who's caring for her child that's a hemophiliac. It's a really tough balance for our employers. So thank you both for jumping on and, and helping give them some points and some things to, to focus on. Thank you. I echo Jared. We appreciate your time today. It is truly a pleasure to dig deep into this concept with both of you. You bring tremendous value to the conversation. Lots more to come. And certainly for our listeners, thanks for tuning in today and be well.